Will you open your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12, right where we were last week, John 12. Today we'll look at verses 31 to 33, the next three verses. <clears throat> this morning we're going to consider the most crucial truth of the Christian faith. Now, you know what the word crucial means, of course, but do you know where the word crucial comes from? You know the root of the word crucial? It comes from the Latin word crux. In fact, we use that Latin word sometimes when we're speaking of crucial things. We say, well, this is the crux of the matter. You heard that expression, perhaps? In other words, this is the crucial thing. And what the Latin word crux mean? It's a word for cross. Cross. In other words, as one of my dictionaries says, when we say that anything is crucial, we are saying it is as central to that which we, to which we apply it as the cross is central to Christianity. The cross, we might say, is the crux of the matter. What Christ did on the cross is at the heart of the Christian faith. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, indeed, in order that we might understand what we celebrate, we're going to consider the meaning of the cross. That's what Jesus talks to us about in these verses. Let me read again. Remember where we are here. Jesus is uh, facing the cross, and the Greeks wanted to talk to him, and he said, nope, this is the time becomes very troubled at the thought of the cross. He talks to his disciples about that a little bit. And then he says these words, verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The meaning of the cross is what Jesus sets before us. Throughout the 2,000-year history of the church, there have been three major views of the atonement of Christ, three views of exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. As you might expect, those three views have, uh, have uh, been set against one another, and then one has been denied in order to make room for another, and people have written and everything. But I think in our text today, in an interesting kind of way, we see the kernel of truth from which each one of those three truths has, has grown. The problem and confusion has come in the church when we have taken one of those truths and used it to deny the others. For us to understand really the meaning of, of, of the cross, we have to see all three, and that's what Jesus sets before us in this wonderful little tiny capsule of a picture of what happens on the cross. These three truths have to do with uh, three persons and the effect that the cross would have on three different persons, the first being God. The, 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 Jesus goes to the cross for us, with a view toward the effect that will have on God, his Father. The second is Satan. Jesus goes to the cross for us with a view toward the effect that's going to have on Satan. And the third is us. Jesus goes to the cross for us with a view to the effect that that's going to have on us. 
That's kind of what we're going to talk about. Let's look at the first one. On the cross, here's the first point. On the cross, Jesus satisfied God's judgment. On the cross, Jesus satisfied God's judgment. I'm sure that you, like myself, are probably sick and tired of hearing about the O.J. Simpson trial, but it still is in the news, isn't it? It just goes on and on. And I heard several times this week the phrase again, I've heard it before, this is the trial of the century. And I thought, oh boy. But in a sense it is, for O.J. Simpson is on trial, and the judicial system is on trial, and the media is on trial, and even whether you can get justice is on trial. There will be so many twists and turns in that case it's going to be talked about for years and years. Maybe it is the trial of the century. But let me tell you, even if it is, the Simpson trial is like a kindergarten skit compared to the complexity and the intricacy of the judicial action which took place on the cross. It's nothing in comparison to this judicial decision. We're talking about the meaning of this first phrase in verse 31 where Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on the world. It didn't look like judgment on the world when Jesus went to the cross, did it? It looked like the world was pronouncing judgment on Jesus. There in Jerusalem, the officials of Rome and the officials of Israel conspired together to judge and condemn Jesus to the cross, even though Pilate had just declared him innocent. But Jesus says, no, the judicial action that really is significant here, that really matters here, is being played out in a different courtroom. It's being played out before a different judge. What's happening on the cross is what's happening in the courts of heaven before the eternal judge. I go to the cross with a view of what that's going to mean in God's courtroom. There at the cross, God judged the world. Judged the world for its wicked rejection of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that there's no coming judgment day. There certainly is a coming judgment day. The Bible says it's appointed to a man once to die and after that the judgment. But what I'm saying is that the verdict of the coming judgment day is, is, is not up for grabs. It is already determined way back at the cross. See, the greatest condemnation anyone can receive is not for theft or rape or murder. Now, the greatest condemnation from which there is no escape is the rejection of Jesus. The person who rejects him, like those who crucified him, and those who continue to not care who would crucify him again if they could, the rejection of Jesus leaves a person not needing to wait to find out what judgment there will be. It's already been determined. Jesus said it back in chapter 3. He said, whoever does not believe, what, will be condemned? No. Stands condemned already. Stands condemned already. At the cross there was judgment going on, all right? But Pilate was not the judge. God was. And there, everyone who rejects the Son incurred a level of guilt that's greater than all of the sins combined in their past. A guilt that would certainly condemn them as God judges a world for its rejection of the Son. 
Oh, but that's not the judgment that I want us to focus on here. An even more significant judicial action that takes place on the cross, an even more significant judgment in the courtroom of heaven, is this, that on the cross, Jesus was judged. Not by Pilate, not by Israel, by his Father, by the Holy God. Jesus was judged in our place as our sin-bearer, our substitute. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the judgment of God for the sins of his people. So there's a great division that comes at the cross. Those who belong to Christ have judgment over already, for he's taken their sin penalty. Those who don't belong to Christ, the judgment's over already in a sense, because they're condemned for rejecting him. Remember I said that there were three historical views of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Well, this is the first one. It's called the objective or the legal view. It was best explained by Anselm back in about 1090 A.D. in the book, Why God Became Man. I just want to describe it again briefly because it's such, so much at the heart of the gospel. Anselm argued like this. He said, when you sin, the seriousness of your sin is determined not by who sins, but who sinned against. So when man sins against God, you don't end up with a man-sized guilt. You end up with a God-sized guilt. So the only one that could possibly save us would be Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, Son of Man. Because Jesus comes and he can take man's debt because he is a man. But he can pay man's debt, which man could never pay because it's an infinite, unlimited sized debt. He can pay man's debt because he is God, the Son of God. Anselm says that's what was happening at the cross. There the spotless Son of Man, Son of God, Jesus, hung on a cross, and God took all of our debt of sin, all of the guilt of our sin, and he attributed it, he imputed it, he put it on Jesus. And the innocent became guilty with our guilt. And then God smote him, punished him, poured out his wrath against Jesus would become guilty with our guilt. When that happened, the sky turned black. The earth shook. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But forsake death. For God could not look on such a sight as the wickedness of the world on the back of his son. Thus, Jesus satisfied God's justice, paid the penalty, served the sentence for our sin, not by convincing God to look the other way and fix it, but by taking on himself the wrath of God that we could forbear. 
Indeed, the Bible sets this truth for us repeatedly. Listen to just some different phrases from the Bible. For example, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Or another one, we have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Or another one, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Or another one, therefore, Paul says, there is now no condemnation. No judgment left for those in Christ Jesus. What a great truth. On the cross, Jesus satisfied God's holy justice in regard to my sin. I never tire of singing it. We sing it forever and again and again. That one great verse of it is well with my soul that sums it up. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. This morning I declare good news to you. This is the answer to our guilt. Jesus became guilty for us and paid, satisfied the judge of heaven. Second truth about the cross. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. We love power confrontations in this country. In fact, I heard a rumor that there's a power confrontation coming this afternoon in New Orleans. Although others say it's not going to be any great power confrontation. But folks, whatever power confrontation the Super Bowl might be, looks like a kid's pillow fight in contrast to the power confrontation that took place on the cross. We're talking about Jesus' statement at the end of verse 31 when he says, when I go to the cross, he says, now the prince of this world will be driven out. In the first point that we talked about, Jesus' death was viewed in terms of the effect it would have on God. Namely, it would satisfy his justice in regard to our guilt. Now Jesus talks about when he goes to, cross, to, the, to the cross, it, it, it will have an effect on Satan. Namely, it will defeat him, drive him out. Thus freeing us from his power and from the power of sin. The first view of Jesus that we talked about is called the legal or objective view. This view is called the Christus Victor view, or Christ is the Victor view, or the classic view, some call it. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan's power. You see, Satan has to be dealt with here. These days, people don't think much about Satan. They don't think about spiritual wickedness, forces of evil, at least not much outside the church. It's mostly consigned to mythology and uh, to other kinds of fairy tales. The things that used to be called sin, we now call diseases or behavioral problems. 
some malady that's result from a genetic flaw or from a dysfunctional environment. And, and certainly there are those things. But so much of what we excuse away is really what the Bible calls evil. Evil. It sees evil in much more profound terms than we talk about it anymore. According to the Bible, what's wrong is not just ignorance. It's not just an inability to cope. What's wrong with us is we've, we've got sin in us. And furthermore, we're not just the victims of sin. We're the perpetrators of sin. And furthermore, this sin is not just a little personal behavioral problem I have. My problems are, are, are part of a great pattern of rebellion against God in the world. And this rebellion even is not just random acts by sinful individuals, but it is all part of a grand strategy of treason that was designed and is now led by the prince of this world, the devil, Satan, the evil one, who holds the world enslaved in sin. The Bible's right about that. Then for us to be saved... There's a problem to be solved that's bigger than just us and our guilt. There's a cosmic struggle going on. It's unseen to us, but we're caught in it nonetheless. And if Jesus is to save us, somehow he's got to free us from our captivity to sin and to death and to evil and to the prince of this world, the devil. Otherwise, there could be no salvation, for we're already held captive. We already owe allegiance to someone else. And that's why the second point is so crucial. That at the cross, Jesus didn't just pay our guilt. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan's power. And we know very little about how this took place. This remains a mystery to us. These are things that happen in an unseen spiritual world that God tells us for sure exists, but he doesn't give us much information about. We knew, though, that the decisive blow is the cross. Actually, this, this uh, power confrontation between Christ and Satan has been building through the years of his ministry. In fact, even at his birth, Satan tried to get rid of him. The Herod uh, ordering the death of all the babies and attempt to get rid of this Jesus. Uh, through the temptation in the wilderness, Satan is trying to, to get rid of this Jesus, to, to negate his, his ministry. Uh, through the crowd's attempt to make him king because he gave them bread and forget about the cross, let's just be a political king. Satan is trying to defeat this Jesus. When, when, when Jesus talks about going to the cross and Peter says, oh no, Lord, not you. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. A crossless kind of leadership is, is Satan's trick. And then Judas betrays him. One of his own inner circle, of his own disciples betrays him. Satan has done everything he can to stop this Jesus. But meanwhile, Jesus has continued to advance against Satan's kingdom. He says his mighty works were evidence that God's kingdom is at hand and it's coming. And, and then he went about and he healed the sick and he made the blind to see and he raised the, the dead even. And all evidence of his power over the effects of sin. And especially Jesus went about casting out demons, something we don't know much about. But we read repeatedly in the scripture thus demonstrating that he is advancing against Satan's forces. They can't stop him. In fact, we saw last week Jesus even sent his disciples out and he gave them the authority to cast out demons. And they came back and they said, man, we can't believe this. 
Even the demons are subject to us. Jesus said, I saw that. I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Now this confrontation that's been going on all along comes to a head on the cross. And they hang Jesus on the cross and he dies. Well, it looks like Satan won, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Looks like that Jesus tried hard, but his kingdom was not strong enough to overcome Satan's kingdom. In fact, Jesus' kingdom had to fall. Satan's stood. That's what it looks like. Oh, but on resurrection morning, it became quite clear that it was quite the other way around. That death could not hold Jesus. That all the sin of the whole world could not hold Jesus that Satan and all his schemes could not destroy Jesus, that Jesus had risen from the dead to end the reign of the evil one. He had broken the chains of sin. He had set free the prisoners of this tyrant. Indeed, the Bible repeatedly makes this clear. Listen to some of the other descriptions of this victory of Jesus over, over Satan. For example, in 1 John 3, 8, we read, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Power confrontation. On the cross, Jesus destroyed Satan's power. Or Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held, uh, whose lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. On the cross, he frees us from Satan who holds us by the power and the fear of death. Or another passage in Colossians 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The thing the New Testament says again and again, and the thing that Jesus predicts here. And he says that today the prince of this world will be cast down. Is that on the cross, Jesus destroyed Satan's power. Now you may say, well, what does all that have to do with us? That's some cosmic struggle I can't see. No, it has very much to do with us. You see, the first view we talked about, the first thing that Jesus did on the cross, has to do with the issue of our guilt. What do we do about our guilt? Well, Jesus paid for it on the cross. But here the issue is about sin's power in us. You and I both know what kind of a battle it is with sin all the time. So, so what do we do? It just seems like sin is bigger than us. It's everywhere. It's in the world. It's like trying to swim upstream in this rushing current that's going the other way. We get tired and we say, there's no hope. Might as well just give in. It's so strong. Might as well just go with the flow and do whatever feels good like everybody else does. Can we go on? Can we stand against Satan and his hosts in, the, in an evil world? Can we? Yes. Yes. Because Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. Jesus gave an illustration once. He said, you know, you can't break into a strong man's house and take his stuff unless you tie him up or defeat him first. What kind of illustration is this? 
Jesus is talking about Satan. Satan's the strong man. Jesus says, if I'm going to plunder Satan's household, I've got to bind him first. I've got to defeat him first. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus took on Satan and he defeated him. He tied him up. He bound him is a picture we get in Revelation 20. And now he comes in and he frees his slaves. He, he, he decimates Satan's kingdom. He walks right through and he takes away what used to belong to Satan. And Satan can growl and he can holler and he can threaten, but he cannot stop Jesus' advance of his kingdom. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross and therefore he gives us the power to live above sin. We don't have to sin anymore. We don't have to do what we want to do, what we feel like doing. We can do what God says. Because Jesus has given us power over sin. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom, his own kingdom. There's a hymn written way back in about 700 A.D., maybe one of the oldest hymns in, that I know. It was written by a man named Andrew of Crete. It's a hymn about this spiritual battle that goes on and how it is that we can win it. Listen to the words of some of this hymn. It says, Christian, do you see them on the holy ground? How the powers of darkness rage your steps around. Christian, up and smite them, counting gain but loss. In the strength that comes from the holy cross. Christian, do you feel them? How they work within, striving, tempting, luring, goading us to sin? Oh, Christian, never tremble. Never be downcast. Gird yourself for battle. Watch and pray and fast. The victory's ours, you see. How? We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 21 says. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan's power. Well, there's one more meaning to cross here. The third thing. From the cross, Jesus loves us to himself. He loves us to himself. Have you ever known a person who maybe was not real articulate to put together an airtight logical argument that no, he could come up with no answer? Maybe had no great financial power or political clout, or, 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 or may not have had impressive social credentials. Have you ever known a person who, even without all of those things that the world counts, is important, nonetheless, had tremendous power, had, and people would follow them and respond to them, and, and, and could have great influence simply because of how they love people. The genuineness, the humility, the fervor of their love. I'm an expert on that. I'm married to a person like You know, I can study all week. 
and I can preach my heart out, and I can develop what I think is an airtight argument for the truth and leave people kind of shaking their heads like, what did he say, and looking at their watch? <laughs> and my dear wife just, she can't do that. But she just loves people into the kingdom. I've seen it for years. She just loves people. They listen to my teaching because she holds them tight long enough that they got to hear it sooner or later. <laughs> you see, most of us can resist airtight logic. Tough to resist the appeal of love, though, isn't it? Tough to turn away somebody who genuinely just loves you with their whole heart, with no pretense. I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this third thing that happens on the cross. When he says in verse 32, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, I will draw all men to myself. From the cross, Jesus loves us to himself. Now, the, the, the view that is developed from this little kernel of truth is is known as the subjective or the moral influence view of the atonement. This understanding of what Christ did on the cross was championed by a man named P Peter Abelard in about 1100 A.D. He saw the cross as God's supreme expression of love for us, a love by which Jesus would inspire and awaken our hearts to love him back. A love which would draw us into the bonds of loving relationship with the Savior. You don't hear this view much, not in our circles, because Abelard was eventually condemned as a heretic because of a lot of his teachings, and this moral influence view of Christ's atonement has come to be associated with those who are compromising the faith and giving away great truth. For you see, you can hold this kind of view while denying that God ever was a holy God who demanded justice and denying that man ever had a sin problem so bad that it would send him to hell and denying that Jesus was even God's son, denying that he was born of a virgin or that he did miracles, that he rose from the dead. And so those who want to deny a lot of things have picked up this view and said, Jesus is a wonderful good man who shows us the power of love as he hangs on the cross and dies as a martyr, misunderstood for some cause. Clearly that's not the biblical view. But we, before we throw the baby out with the bathwater here, think about what Jesus is saying in this third thing. You see, yes, Jesus died on the cross with a view to the effect that it would have on God, and therefore he satisfied God for our sin, our guilt. And yes, Jesus died on the cross with a view to the effect it would have on Satan, and there he defeated Satan in this cosmic power struggle, which Jesus won. But when Jesus died on the cross, he also died with a view of the effect it would have on you and on me. And what effect did he seek? Some mocked, some scoffed, turned away in disgust. Yet he stayed. Why? Jesus himself tells us, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw you to myself. From the cross, Jesus draws us. He, he pulls us. He loves us into a relationship with himself. 
Well, this view can't stand apart from the others. For unless God is satisfied with Jesus' payment for our sin, and unless Satan is defeated, there's no way we could be drawn, there's no way we could come. Nor would we come. Ah, but in the context of the whole message of the cross, this is a beautiful part, you see. For Christ's death is not just some judicial action in the far-off courts of heaven. And it is not just a cosmic power struggle won by Jesus in some unseen spiritual world. Jesus' death on the cross is love's appeal saying, Come to me. Come to me. Can you see how I love you? Come love me to me. Follow me. Jesus calling us into relationship. Nobody could come unless he draws us. We'd all just go the other way. Jesus said himself in chapter 6, no one can come unless the Father draws. But he does. In fact, the church father asked Athanasius once noted, it is only on the cross that a man dies with his arms outstretched to encompass the world. That's what Jesus is doing, still doing, this morning. Right here, right now. That's what preaching is. God sending his ambassadors to say, as Paul said, we implore you, we plead with you, what? Be reconciled to God. See, God's been reconciled in that our sin has been atoned for. Now Jesus draws us to be reconciled. God's love compels us, Paul says. That's the appeal I would make to you this morning. Jesus didn't just accomplish salvation for you in some court of justice or some spiritual battlefield. No, Jesus calls to you in love to come to him. I fear that many of us who have grown up with good theology, good training, grown up in the church, know all about the logic of Jesus' death on the cross. We know about atonement for sin. We know about his defeat of Satan. What we sometimes have failed to hear is loving appeal. I ask you, I challenge you this morning. Is your faith in Jesus merely an intellectual understanding of the logic of his atonement? Or are you drawn to Jesus? Do you love him? Do you walk with him? Do you enjoy his fellowship? Do you go to the cross with him? But joyfully because... I know the fellowship of my Savior. You see, if we have all the right views of everything, but we don't respond to the drawing of love, the faith gets pretty, pretty ugly and empty and hypocritical. But that's not the whole story. 
Yes, Jesus paid for our sin. Yes, he defeated Satan. And yes, he draws us to walk in relationship with him. Living relationship with him. Anything less is a distortion of the crux of the matter. The cross. Amen. Father, I pray that we would hear not just the wonderful truths of your atonement for sin, not just the wonderful truths of your victory over Satan, but may we hear again and again your call to come, to love you, to walk with you, to serve you. Keep us, Lord, from the cold, sterile hypocrisy that so easily grows in, in a purely intellectual environment and give us hearts on fire with love for Jesus, I pray in his name.